Better listen very carefully. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Essentially, at this point, the fight is over. So you pretty much flow with the goal. Who is worthy to be trusted with the secret to limitless power? I'm ready. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Bulletproof for BJJ podcast. I am JT, I'm here with my partner in crime, Joey, and we are blessed today to have Dr. Andrew Locke, Dr. Strength, physio extraordinaire with us. Welcome. <laughs> blessed is another word, so I'm also the Reverend Andrew Locke, who owns the Church of Rehabilitation as well. We should always remember that. <laughs> preach, preach, amen. Fantastic. We're going to be preaching the word today, aren't we, huh? We are. And uh, I love the work you guys have been doing. It's been sensational. It's a real awesome product you've got and a real great mindset, and you've got a lot of good reasoning behind what you do. So I'm looking forward to doing the mind meld with you guys. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's nice to to have associates, people in the game, coming from different places, but that, you know, whatever. That's a big compliment for us. Thank you so much. And I, I think the thing which always struck me, I remember the first time I actually came to see you uh, mm. I've been referred kind of, you know, as a connection through your daughter, Lorna, and then also Will. Um, of course. Will Lobus. And they're like, yeah, you've got to go <laughs> see Big Lock. I remember going into your uh, treatment area uh, in Melbourne and I remember in your office you had, I think you had a GHD, like a glute ham developer. <laughs> I think you had some kettlebells. Oh, yeah. we had the 64 kilo kettlebell at that point. Mate, there was all that. I was like, <laughs> is this? And obviously there was books. You had an extraordinary mm. desk and you were wearing a – it looked like a three-piece suit. It was incredible. So, so it was. You looked Jeez. like a, a, a Bond villain. You're like, <laughs> like still working on it. <laughs> in, in the real. And I was just so impressed. It was so different to any other kind of physiotherapy setup I'd been in. And you were just so uh, to the point. It was actually incredibly refreshing because I'd found when I'd been to physios before, one, they didn't understand jiu-jitsu – and two, they really were just like, just stop doing whatever you're doing. And that for me was <laughs> just kind of sent a bit redundant. Well, so, you're right. That's why I am seen as a goddamn Bond villain as calling the most physios anyway. Because, <laughs> you know, I think there's bullshit when you waste your time doing things that you haven't got any idea about really. You graduated with no idea and you're not doing any continuing education that's going to give you any idea. So, you know, my point is I like to be a disruptor. It's time to start educating people and get out of their comfort zones. Oh, yeah. To give us a bit of background on your daily, who, who are most of the people that you you work with? It's all realistically be about 80% athletes and they will come from all different sports. It could be a major league baseball athlete. It could be a pro wrestler. It can be a jiu-jitsu um, professional. It can be a lot of obviously the weight training, strongman and powerlifting crew. So everything's built still upon the tenets that better living through strength and weakness can never be tolerated, and it's usually weakness which has set up your problems. So let's get rid of that. <laughs> nice. That's that's awesome. And your background is powerlifting, is Andrew? Uh, man, I'm just a failed fail powerlifter, failed bodybuilder. Just me. No, no. <laughs> I, for, for those of you who cannot see Dr. Locke right now, this man is so thick, and what I get very impressed about is, is your traps. Now, I'm wondering if you, in some of those photos, you're wearing a rock, the rock-esque 
like a push-up, <laughs> like a, ma- a, a male suit. Yeah, a male push-up <laughs> collar that makes the traps appear bigger <laughs> than they are. But <laughs> Andrew is actually wearing a chain, like a chain oh, yeah. with a padlock around his neck. This man is not messing about. This man, everything speaks of strength. And I guess one of the most interesting things, it was just a piece of advice I think you'd said to me was, you were talking about different joints in the body and you're talking about joint complexity. And I can't remember where you'd got it from, but you'd referenced some, some books that you had and you said, look, it's really good for you to understand a joint, like the knee, like start with mm. the knee, you know, learn everything you can about it and then work to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and really try to master an understanding of a part of the body. And I've never really had anyone break it down for me in that way. But what has moved you to this idea? Because you've been a physiotherapist, I don't Mm -hmm. know how long. What has brought you to this conclusion of strength, eliminate weakness? Like tell us where that comes from. All right. Shit, you got me even wondering myself, but I'll give you some of the points where you got there. Because when I graduated, I was very fortunate. I went straight into a um, specialist sports medicine clinic. And the person who ran the clinic, she was a very intimidating individual, and rightfully so. Uh, She'd earned her stripes. Now, she said to me, pulled me in the office and said, your job being here is to become the best in the world at something. And she said, and I'm the best in the world at shoulders, so you're going to have to do something else. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the, the excellence of that is, your path and your career path in your life is built to be the best at something. And you can only be here if that's what you're going to do. And I think that was the thing that really has always resonated well with me then. It was, okay, you're never satisfied. Man, I've, I learn things every day. I mean, I woke up the other morning, I'm trying to think, got in about one o'clock in the morning and by five, I suddenly figured out a way of explaining lower back rehab concepts better in my courses. So now I'm up at five o'clock writing up um, some nice things. We'll even introduce those today because they're things that you just go, yeah, that's pretty obvious really, but why don't we see it? Yeah. And uh, one of the other things that really got me was after I was, when I was doing a master's degree at um, one of the hospitals, I was doing some placement time there. And after the first week of working in that hospital, the uh, head of that department pulled me in and sat me down and said, stop fixing people. You're, you're learning nothing. What? <laughs> you're wasting your time here because all you're doing is you know what works. Now, I want you to go and try and understand and find the things you don't believe in. Find ways to see if what you don't believe in can work. Now, that liberated me for the rest of my career. Wow. You got to, if you toss something away, maybe it had a place. Can you test it somewhere else? Can you keep testing it? And, of course, that's been the best part of my intellectual development was, okay, I know that works. Well, that's wasting my time if I keep doing that every day. I can still use it every day, but can I use it and reference something else that I didn't believe in? And that's the real professional skill, isn't it? That's what you guys will obviously have. Yeah, you get to know it works. Is that where you stop? Yeah. It's really point. It's easy to rest on your laurels, isn't it? Oh, Yeah. Too easy. And then you find someone who knows what you know how to do and then you're in the shit because in your sport, okay, you're going to have to adapt now because someone knows what you do. Yeah, that's right. You need. And if that's all you got. You need something new in there. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I I guess so, uh, you know, I've I've known your daughter Lorna since she was like back white belt days. I think I remember seeing her at at Dominance Comp, like (laughs) just terrorizing people as like maybe a 14-year-old or a – 15-year-old, yeah. like uh, uh, 
I think she hyperventilated the first time at 12. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, because uh, we both had Peter the Bean, I think, at that stage. And, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, that was that was like the initial connection and she has always been a, a great competitor and a, a, a like a, just a, a an athletic beast just putting smash on grown women, <laughs> which is just like very <laughs> confronting uh, when you've well, got this, this strong woman coming at you, young lady, I should say. It's good to see the mongrel coming back. Yep. She's still she's still a little bit cultured at the moment. We need to get rid of that. Yeah, just just <laughs> get rid of it. Bring out the beast, hey. Yeah, and it's coming. I guess the thing is like we're we're speaking to people who do jujitsu. And Yes. And for I think for the best part, I'm not I'm not too wrong in saying a lot of people who, who are listening to this right now juggle many different things. Mm. And the common complaint or the common issue people have is like, oh, I've barely got enough time to do jujitsu. It's like, oh, I, I, I'm just getting my jiu-jitsu in and then they're not doing necessarily enough body maintenance work. They're not doing the strength work. They're not doing mobility and people are getting c- c- accumulating smaller injuries, which might mm. lead, lead to big injuries later. Uh, you do work with a lot of different people. Um, yeah. I guess what is your – do you find that there's common problems you see with jiu-jitsu people coming to you or is there common mistakes they're making? Like where can you points. steer people here? And some good points you bring up there is where people say their time's short. Well, I don't know a single successful athlete who is a balanced human being. If you want to be successful, well, let's say it this way. If you want a balanced life, be prepared to be shit at everything. Okay, you're not going to be good at anything. You're going to be a little bit good at business. You're going to be a little bit good at your relationship. You'll be a little bit good at your sport, but you won't be excellent at anything. And come on, that's just a classic thing you all know and you've all been through it. What's it like when you just committed? Yeah, that's right. You are so out of balance. Your relationships go out the door. You ain't got much money. You're living in your car. Yeah, but what's the number one thing in your life? That's what you dedicate to you is your jujitsu. Now, that's the thing we all perhaps go through in our development where we we come out of balance. Now, if you want to be successful, yeah, getting out of balance is part of it. And that's sort of part of the rehab process. You're going to prioritize your prehab, your rehab. You're going to prioritize what it takes. I always say to people when they tell me they've got an hour to train in the gym, I say, well, you're going to need an hour and a half. You may be training for an hour, but you've got a half hour of preparation that is unnegotiable if you wish to be successful. Now, my process often is, so I'm talking about lower back rehab, uh, I will tell the patient probably on the first appointment, okay, here's your series of exercises you must do. You must do these twice a day, every day for the next three months. Then it's once a day, every day for the rest of your life. When are you allowed to stop doing these things? And I look at me and go, never. And I go, that's right, never. There is no off days from here. You have a problem. And if you don't address it, it will come back. Now, that's the unnegotiables. You know, if you are prepared to not do the things that you have to do, then be prepared to pay the price. You are not going to be successful. You are more than likely going to get hurt again and you're going to get the same problem. And guess what? The solution is just the same. So do you want to just avoid the recurrence? Here's what you've got to do. And we're not negotiating on it. That's the point. Wow. I'm not not here to pat rabbits. (laughs) Can can I ask to that that example, uh, what what sort of issues uh, regarding the lower back are you talking about there? Like what would be a a common thing? Oh, the most common thing goes back to our 
evolutionary heritage. We are the only primate that exists with a lumbar lordosis. So there's no other primate has a lumbar lordosis, lumbar curvature. 4.4 million years ago, your first ancestor started to walk upright. There was evidence of that in a particular primate called Morotopithecus, which shows a bit of a change in the vertebrae. I actually got one of the vertebrae here somewhere. Now, 400,000 years ago, here's you as a hunter-gatherer. You're having to survive by running, squatting, deadlifting, climbing trees, throwing spears and fighting. Well, that's how you got to be here because your ancestors happened to be the ones that got through it. Now, jiu-jitsu is beautiful for it because it asks you to move in the various patterns that you should be performing. But your lifestyle might not be. Your lifestyle might be set in a chair most of your life. You might be sitting in a, a truck driving. You might be sitting in an office and then you go off and you grab your gear and you head down to the train. All right, the problem here is you're not a hunter-gatherer and you haven't been moving in hunter-gatherer patterns and your body's actually forgotten very well how to move in certain patterns that are most efficient. The most common thing I'm going to find from that is weak glutes are going to be the dominant thing. Because in upright stance, which is the hunter-gatherer, the gluteals work most effectively from the zero degrees angle. That is shoulder, hip, knee, all in a straight line. That's where your glute max powers you most. And you know in jiu-jitsu, if you can bring someone's knee up towards their chest, their hips aren't that strong in extension at that position. That's the weakness that we will have in that position. And guess what? You're sitting in that position all day. Now, as a result, your gluteals aren't into extension very often. If your gluteals aren't into extension very often, uh, you're going to have to make a compensation somewhere, and it's probably going to be in your lumbar spine. So realistically, the, to address the issue that we look at is if we treat ourselves like hunter-gatherers in our strengthening programs – so we move like hunter-gatherers, and that might mean picking up an atlas stone. That might mean squatting. But we have to respect that we need to have a capacity to do those things. Now, if you're using your capacity up by sitting in essentially a poor posture, which puts you into posterior pelvic tilt all day, then you go and lift something up heavily that requires posterior pelvic tilt, you might not have a whole lot in the bank. So there's the essential weakness here is being able to address hip extension and basically lumbar spinal neutral for various times. We don't want to get hung up on neutrals being the only position that you're allowed to be in, but neutral is a requirement if you got injured. And then I can take you into flexion later. And there's a challenge a lot of professionals don't get. They don't understand neutral for a start as to why, and there's only three basic patterns of real injury in lumbar spine that you'll pick up. Oh, man, I've even got a spine here. Freaking, how good's that? There's oh, a spine yeah. for you. Oh, yeah. Right. Yep. Dang. Who'd you rip that out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually from cadaver bone. This is a real shit one. Shit hot. This little muscle arm. All right. If you want to pop a posterior disc, you apply flexion and compression to it. All right. So flex the spine, compress the front. Disc material is going to go that way. That's how your nucleus is going to go. That is the mechanism of lumbar disc herniation, and it's been proven for so many years. It's ridiculous. Um, Landmark paper was by a guy called Adams. He can hunt it up about 1982 or 84. All right. Every paper ever since, it doesn't matter whether it's a computer model, it doesn't matter if it's an animal model, it doesn't matter if it's a cadaver study, it doesn't matter if it's an MRI study. Every single study that's ever been performed shows that if you put pressure down and flexion into that position here, you will cause some migration of the nucleus or at least the pressure gradient within it. Okay, that's how you piss off a disc. If you go into extension too hard, too often, that's how you're going to fracture the facet joint. That's your spondylolisthesis. Straightforward. That's mechanics and physics. Compression down on top, you fall down off a ladder from the roof 
If you've been painting, you land on your feet, body weight compression down, you've got an end plate fracture. There you go. It's simple physics. There's no mystery to this. I always listen to interesting things where you see people say, oh, we don't know much about lumbar spines. Dude, speak for yourself. <laughs> I freaking know pretty much everything there is about the lumbar spines, and so does anyone else who's reasonably well-educated. But it takes a long time to get that good to know it. It's easier to say we don't understand, then you're just blaming the patient for being shit, and it's not your problem for being a shit clinician. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Because so much of jiu-jitsu, especially if I look at, like, jiu-jitsu as a sport, because, mm. like, you know, the first couple of gyms I trained at were predominantly guard-focused. You know, we mm. didn't do a lot of um, takedowns and wrestling, which requires a strong back, good extension. Like judo, you know, since I've, you know, become a black belt in jiu-jitsu, I, I've started training judo, and so much of that is about having exceptionally good posture and having really strong upper back and, you know, like that's so crucial. You don't do these hunched jiu-jitsu postures, but with the popularity of guard playing and people having games which are really based around being fighting off their back, having their hips flexed, being in these rounded postures, inversions. A lot of the people, and I mean, don't let me speak out of pocket here, but we see a lot of jiu-jitsu players coming in and they look like hunchback golems. They do not look <laughs> athletic. Even elite jiu-jitsu players, when you meet them, you're like, oh. I'm not, I'm not talking about Gordon Ryan here. I'm talking about like <laughs> when you see the Meow Brothers, they look kind of hobbled. And welcome to welcome to being out of balance and being successful. Right, right. And so that's, that's that's a hallmark of the person who survives it. Not everybody's going to get injured. Right. And the elite athlete tends not to be an athlete. You tend to know not always the one who gets injured. It's the one who didn't get injured. There might be more talented people out there, but their capacity to endure the work was lower. Sort of bit of evolution. The person who can survive that quite well will tend to be the person who lasts the longest. It doesn't mean everyone's the same. There are people out there who are very fragile. Um, she had the slightest little thing, and, oh, I hurt, I can't train. Man, I've seen world champions tear pecs and still compete. You know, there's the famous Bill Kazmaier. He yeah. tore his pec in the world's strongest man comp. Yeah, then he set a deadlift record 20 minutes later. You know, I remember seeing Andre Milanichev. Now, he's one of the greatest all-time powerlifters. Andre from Russia came out, and he lay down the bench press in this massive comp, and he missed a 250-kilo bench press. He stood up, totally impassive, lumbers off the stage. Ten minutes later, comes back, gets a 250. Ten minutes later, gets a 260, I think. Wow. Uh, to win the comp, he has to deadlift 400 kilos. And he pulls off a 400-kilo deadlift to win. Uh, guess what? Andre actually tore his tricep on that first missed uh, miss bench press. Wow. Oh, these people are not normal, but that's why they are who they are. Right. And there's that expression as a professional, you just got to understand that you're going to get people who are going to be different, but the mechanisms of injury and rehab, should we have to deal with them, are all the same. The underlying principles are the same. It just depends. Some people will last and other ones won't. Was Michael Jordan such a, you know, Reasonably, the greatest player of his time. Well, he was certainly the one who survived his training. Right. There may be someone with more talent who didn't make it. Right. For sure. And I guess you said something interesting to me in, in one of our sessions when I saw you. This is many years ago when I was a blue belt. But I was, I think I'd had a neck injury. Like I'd kind of compressed my head. Uh, I had pain in my yeah. neck. And, and, um, and I said, oh, you know, like 
you know, should I just be doing all these neck strengthening and all this different stuff because I got guillotined. And you yeah. said, well, if someone wants to grab your head and kind of snap your neck with their whole body weight, um, you, they're probably going to injure you. You know, like even yeah. if your neck's really strong, if someone just decides they're going to bend your joint the wrong way, mm. there's only so much you can do. Like you, you will be injured. Mm. You were kind of – I guess what I took from that is like the inevitability is you're going to get an injury. But yeah. if you are better prepared, it won't be as bad than if you were not. Totally right, yeah. Your ability to have a bigger safety net to be able to survive that. And a lot of what we talk about is the accumulation of forces. If you can decrease the accumulation of forces that lead to an injury, then you've got a bigger capacity to be able to survive an impactful event. That's why we might talk about the neutral training spine at certain times because you're teaching a person to use a better movement pattern at times that they don't need to be in flexion. So that when they do need to be in flexion, go for it. Impose the load. I'm fresh. I'm ready. But if you're wasting your flexion as an injured individual who's, you know, the statistics on lower back are very obvious. It's 80% of all adults will have a lower back incident in their life and over 90% of those have recurrent incidents. All right, what's not happening here? Someone's not addressing the cause in the first place. Now, if we address the cause, then we don't have the recurrence. An interesting one is spinal fusions, right? If a person has a spinal fusion of a segment because it's basically unstable, causing problems, um, within a few years, you tend to get the level above or below it starts to degenerate. Now, is that a failure of surgery or is that a failure of rehab? I'm going to tell you it's a failure of rehab because someone hasn't addressed the initial movement patterns that caused the first reason for the fusion. You've just gone and stuck someone straight back out there and you haven't even addressed the reason that they need the fusion in the first place. Okay, now we're going to start addressing the failure of rehab. Rehab has to address the movement patterns that led to the injury. That's pretty much where it sets up. So we want to give people resilience out there, and then we want them to be able to go out and lift up a 200-kilo Atlas stone because they've got the capacity to do it. Nice. Gentlemen, y'all strive for gold in your life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with confidence of a lion and he giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless winning machine. And when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to announce that their biggest and best ultimate hygiene bundle, the Platinum Package 4.0, is now available worldwide. JT, Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with your whole hygiene routine. Join the 6 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code GRIZZLY. You too can have this same level of hygiene. You get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code GRIZZLY at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. It's time you enjoyed the finer things in life. Get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. I wanted to ask regarding the spine and I, I had a knee so I had a knee reconstruction a few years ago now and it, it always sort of makes me laugh a little bit. Whenever I meet someone who's had an injury, um, potentially something that they've got to have surgery on, they get the MRI, they go see the surgeon and what they come back to me with is always surgeon told me it's the worst fucking knee they've ever seen. They told me they, told me they can't believe that I'm still walking on this thing. And you hear, you hear this, right, all the time and obviously surgeons have a, a, you know, whatever, there's a bit of a bias there. But my question is, 
I've heard that with the spine, and this ties into your evolutionary kind of background of, of where the spine evolved from, but if you put a, a magnifying glass on anyone's spine, you're going to see damage. Hmm, of course. Is it the case when you're looking at the body that you're going to see damage everywhere? And so kind of what you're getting at in that, in that last point was that it's your capacity to be able to withstand a bit of the damage, but it doesn't affect you negatively. Like it's not the kind of thing that's going to lay you up for months. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think realistically when I look at it, we have different expressions of collagen, for example, our hair, our discs, various things. And there are some people who have collagen deficiencies. Now, they're going to be far – and their, their collagen basically is more flexible. It's not as well constructed. That's a genetic situation. Now, in evolution, that person may or may not have an advantage or a disadvantage. But in the society we now live in, everyone basically gets support to exist. But if you look at the real tough world of what it is, that perhaps those people are going to have a challenge, especially someone who's hypermobile, perhaps going into jujitsu, because their joints are going to go to positions that are a bit different to everybody else. So on a spine, yeah, you'll see some damage. But then again, I can look at my uh, basically eighty-year-old mother-in-law, and she's got a spine like a sixteen-year-old ballerina because she's never done any exercise in her life, and her spine looks like uh, the muscles around it look like wagyu steak. It's that fatty and you know never used. <laughs> it's the most I'd swap my spine for that any day. I haven't even got a disc left between the last two vertebrae. I blew it up 20 years ago. Now, it went from the process of being absolutely, yeah, let's call it exploded. I really blew the bastard up, right? took two years to walk properly again. Fuck. I haven't had a back problem basically since I resolved the issue. But over time, that just kept degenerating until it's just bone sitting on bone. It's nice and fused down there. Didn't have any pain or problems either. So there's no correlation that says because it's got degeneration, it's going to hurt. Well, there's your Milanichev. Tore my tricep, yeah, and I've got another bench to do. All right, not everyone's like that. And so we can play with the different processing of pain, but then again, dysfunction is imperative. A lot of those people who, when they tear something and they are majorly good athletes, they never really actually bring it back to the top level again. They're up there, they're close, they're competitive, but you can look at a lot of the greats. Look at Dorian Yates, for example. Look at Ronnie Coleman. When the shit starts to go, it's gone. You were at the top. Yeah. You don't quite take it back there. Um, and the, the idea here is that you want to stop the process to which those things limit you. So, yeah, you can have degeneration. You can have dysfunction. But if we can treat the dysfunction and make you more fundamentally resilient, then you can continue on being competitive and you can go to a world championship again. But you've got to understand the processes behind it. Just because you don't feel pain doesn't mean that you're functional. So that point you made about your mother-in-law with the, you know, with the immaculate <laughs> spine, um, something that I've always held as a belief, and I want to chat, and I'm asking, I want to ask because I could have this wrong, yeah. is that I've always thought that, yeah, if you, if you live an active lifestyle and you do something like jiu-jitsu or powerlifting, whatever, you are going to take damage. That's a given. Mm, yeah. um, but then I've always kind of had in my mind, if you do nothing, you're going to take damage as well. <laughs> because life's a motherfucker and it's and degradation is going to occur. So you can either kind of get, um, you know, smaller injuries but also be stronger and more resilient through an active approach or you kind of just melt away. Wear, wear out or rust out. <laughs> yeah, but, but is, is that oh, true? Absolutely. Is there a case that preservation – like is preservation a thing if you kind of don't do much? Oh, yeah, it's there. But then again, I would look at her and say her ability to um, balance would be terrible and her chances of falling over are pretty reasonable. Um, her side-to-side balance would be absolutely almost non-existent. Now, she just 
Shit, I think she has fallen over once or twice. Well, how many old people fall over, break the hip, and go? And yeah, well, they got weak glute medius, weak glute minimus. That's always been shown in study as well. That leads to the ability to be more likely to fall. So yeah, there's um a really really essentially I think it's a Brazilian fellow, could uh, be a cardiac um, specialist, who put together these tests of predictability of whether you'd be dying within five years result um, related to your movement patterning. Whoa. You do, do this to older people. I have to find it for you. But it's very, very effective. It's actually very predictable. Is people with very, very poor movement patterns um, in those older populations, they will tend to be the ones who will die within five years, quite often according to his movement patternings, which have been looked at quite a bit. And, yeah, guess what? Getting off the ground to standing up is a really important part of a human being's life. And that's one of the part. That's basically his testing is evolved around how you point the numbers on that and what you know what score you get getting off the ground. Wow, we'll have to we'll have to get a link from you on that. I'm intrigued. I'm going to run yeah. that on my parents. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> they won't know. So, <laughs> I'll just be like, Mum, Dad, sit on the floor. Why we have couches? <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, so you're right about the rust out or wear out. Now I often get people who come in and they haven't done a whole lot of training or any athletic endeavours, and they're hitting 40s to 50s, right? And they're going, am I too old? I usually grab them by the ears and say, you lucky bastard, you haven't worn anything out right now. You're set to dominate the masses because if you can move well, you've got a huge capacity under there of a body that basically really has a lot of potential. I mean, how many AFL footballers and people do you see walking around in 40s that you couldn't tell they played footy all their life? Yeah, and rugby. Absolutely. You know, it's the price we pay. Right. Yeah, there is a cost. A lot of people out there don't necessarily know what they need to do. And we, we espouse always that, that people need to be lifting. They need to be doing their mobility work as well if they don't have adequate range. But then we also definitely advise people to, you know, have a physio, have someone like a body mechanic you can go see so that if you if you need, does you do get a pop or – you, you know, you, you can't feel your fingers are tingling, you you know, something with your neck, go and talk to someone who knows, not just oh the the classic jujitsu things, oh just I'll just strap it, you know, whatever, just get back out there, pull harder, just train. Do you have any I guess recommendations? Understanding obviously, you know, being around jujitsu and seeing these unathletic, weak individuals crawling around on the ground. No. Um <laughs> Would you say you have like any solid recommendations or mistakes you see people making early in the jiu-jitsu journey that they could change to have like high yield benefit? Well, one of the points you say that's really good, find somebody who knows what you do is a really useful way to attend to an injury. And it doesn't have to be a physio, a chiro, an osteo, or myo, but it can be if that person understands your sport. I would never see somebody who didn't understand or had not got a relationship to what I do. So I wouldn't go and see just the corner guy because he's cheap and I've got a, some the doctor gives me five free freaking um, appointments. All right, that's just going to waste your time. Um, I mean, I'm expensive. You know, I'm $500 an hour as a consultation. That's me, all right? Fact is, I know what I do. I spend a lot of years doing it. I spend a lot of money to get as good as I am. Um, that's your cost to go to see somebody perhaps who is has expertise in their area. But from that, it's cheaper in the long run because very quickly on those first approaches, we will determine what your outcomes are. The first thing I ask a patient is, okay, what's your problem? Second question is, what's your goals? What are we going to get you back to? You tell me you've got to get back to the Olympics? 
that's my goal. I've got to get you there. Now, but I'm not your programming or strength coach. I'm the guy who fixes you up like the Formula One pit boss. I'll figure out what's wrong with you, but I'm going to handle you off to your strength coach who deals in your sport. That way I don't blur the lines. I'm, I'm, I do what I do. I don't program people except in the rehab process. So it's super imperative. If you're going to go see somebody, see somebody who has a reputation for understanding what you do. And look at our sport. There's so many people who do understand what they do, and they're on the mats doing what they do. They'll be the ones you should go see. Now, as far as the um, prehab, the way of looking at preventing movement patterning, yeah, it's tough because it's almost like you've got to know that the coach themselves tends to be somebody who might have gone through the experiences you've gone through too. You know, the worst thing is to get coached by somebody who's never been injured <laughs> because <laughs> they, just, they just don't know what it's like. Um, that's pretty much it. You want somebody who's gone through a few things, and as a result of that, they've got a bit more insight into what you should be doing to address the situation. The, there's a real problem in um, people think that because there's some science that has been demonstrated, there's automatically assimilated into the common body of knowledge. It's like that uh, Star Wars crew, the Borg, you know, they get some information straight into the hive. Everyone knows it. Dude, most of the physios, chiros, osteos I see who have come through their years of university have got no clue about the evidence and the research and the science behind actually, say, jiu-jitsu or even simple spinal biomechanics. Uh, that's really frightening is that the evidence is out there, but people are not educated to find it. So it's really a matter of saying, you know, I don't expect just because that person's got a title that they know what they're going to be doing. Yeah, you've you found that in yourselves, probably in your jujitsu careers. You've gone to see somebody who you expected more of, didn't quite have it. You had to move somewhere else to get that information that was relevant to you. So I really think that's the tough part of the um, the rehab journey is you've got to see people such as yourselves and the products that you offer, which is how you've got insights into what it's like to be resilient. So if somebody says, I'm going to go train five days a week at jujitsu, yeah, that's good. And what's your set up what are you doing to make yourself resilient for that well you've got to see people like yourselves who will show you how to address those issues and as you see i love the idea you're out there trying to lift up an atlas stone well you're going to be needing to flex your spine mm. but how do you transition from the neutral to the flex you've got to earn the right to get there that's right yeah now i remember because i'm a i'm a big fan of powerlifting a big fan mm-hmm. of anything yeah. strength related and i remember learning about ed Cohn. And, you know, this guy, you know, considered the goat of his era and seeing him, you know, lift 4.2 times body weight, whatever it was, and his upper back is rounded. But mm. not his lumbar spine, but his upper back. And I remember all these comments of people being like, oh, you can't round your spine and all this stuff. But then when I was talking with Efim, my, my Russian strength coach, he was talking about uh, Valentin. Uh, Valentin Dukul. Dukul, yeah. Round back lifting and how you – you can lift with a rounded back, but it has mm-hmm. to be fucking strong. Like you it's can't, imperative. you can't just start like that. Obviously, you've got to build a base level. But when I was looking at jujitsu, I'm like, so much of this is round back lifting, you know. Yeah, and that's why I, I it, you know, in a kind of anecdotal way, I was kind of putting it together for myself. Like, all right, you know, I've done years of deadlifts, and like, what can I do to start to strengthen my back like this and work out my own tolerance over time and that's why i i love atlas stones because i try to imagine that like like picking up a person even though uh the stone is not fighting back <laughs> but it's still it's, it's it's harder in some ways you know 
Well, one of the things you point that are really good, and this is the development that came to me the other day, and it came from talking to a neurosurgeon called uh, David Johnson, who's in Brisbane. David runs a CrossFit box as well, so he's a neurosurgeon who has a 200-kilo deadlift. <laughs> oh, right. Nice. <laughs> and what's he do? He wants to get people to not have surgery. He wants them to get moved from competency. Now, the thing there which we have moved, if I look at where the education in our lives are, we would say, okay, if you hurt your lumbar spine disc, if you hurt your lumbar disc, then we've got the McGill Big Three or we've got the Lock Base Five. These are your neutral spine beginnings. And what we tended to emphasize as well is, okay, when we're lifting something heavy, we want to have flexion moment arms. That means we can get into flexion, but we must hold that flexion position without going further into flexion under load. Really nice concept. There's a little bit more to it now. This is what woke me up the other day, is the stability of the ability to go into further flexion under load is what you're going to have in jiu-jitsu. So stability is really what we're looking at. Stability being the ability to flex under load, but with control. And that's the component that has the transition that hasn't been spoken about well. We've got the neutral spine. We've got the flexion moment arm where we, we may be in flexion, but we're not allowing it to flex further as we load. Uh, but you must have stability that allows when your opponent is going to bring you into flexion under load. And there's your safety net. So we need to be able to train to be able to actually go into flexion movement under load. You need to have stability to do that. If you can stabilize under load movement, you won't get the lumbar spine injury. Can I take a sec just to give some context to listeners? If, you, if you're hearing this, let's talk about in, specifically in jiu-jitsu, right? If you're sitting in, uh, let's say you're in someone's closed guard, they throw up a triangle on you mm. and your back starts to round and let's say you then stand up because you're like, I'm fucking not tapping to this thing. Getting out. Your back is in flexion, it's rounded. Now, mm. um, for people, like I've always done this, JT, and a lot of grabbers, just stand up. Like, stand up. Yeah, you stand up. So you're lifting another person your spine is moving through from a flexed position, potentially into a slightly less flexed position. But if you can listen to what Andrew's saying, like there's a lot of movement happening at the spine there under load. Now, if we think about what's happening in the gym, we're doing lifts like deadlifts and squats and stuff like that in a very formalized, controlled way. And so in that way, the gym is like very safe and predictable. Jiu-jitsu is highly chaotic. Yes. And, and so we're really, yeah. And so, you know, for anyone that's trained jits, like, all right, We've got to acknowledge that it's complete chaos that you're in. And so we're trying to understand the concepts in order to be able to handle that chaos. Yes. <laughs> it's chaos except if you're winning. That's right. It's <laughs> a fucking great day. <laughs> there was a, Ed Cohen actually said that to me recently. He said, there's no such thing as pain except losing. <laughs> <laughs> what a legend. How old is Ed yes. Cohen now? Mate, he'd, he'd be 60 almost, 50. He's got to be 60. I actually chat to Ed quite often each week, so we've got a good relationship. He's just a great human being. He's also got the most hand-crushing power you've ever seen. Uh, wow. Seriously, that hand is immense. And wow. um, it was funny because I've actually had some hand problems over the years. So when I shook Ed's hand probably the first time, he sort of looked, gave me a look as sort of like, what was that? And then my daughter shook his hand later in the day and he just turned around and said, your daughter's got a better handshake than you. <laughs> <laughs> Rough. Rough. Uh, he was right too, yeah. <laughs> Savage. But the, what you're talking about there is, is the important part about, yeah, the chaos and the ability to actually be able to flex under load and not get hurt. The idiots in the uh, gyms, they may start with a good deadlift technique, but they're going to do their, as many reps as possible 
and their technique is going to crumble. Now, at that point, welcome to the red zone because now you're flexing under load and you don't have good technique to stabilize that under load. That's what you need to learn, but I don't want to teach you how to have bad technique in the gym. I don't want you to teach you how to go to the red line under a lot of load, but I can teach you that in a more controlled way, such as our bag lifts, we can do our atlas stone lifts, in which we're going to start in a flex position and learn to work with that. I wouldn't start from a deadlift where we're trying to max out and see what we can get because basically the moment arms are shitting that, you've got your shoulder away from your hips and you've got, you know, it's not like jujitsu where you're working on that person's being close to you. You're controlling centres of mass very close to each other. And that's an imperative part, I think, of what when we train for something, we understand what we're doing with the centres of gravity. You pick up the atlas stone, you're not holding it out in front of you, you're bringing that thing right into you. Close. That's your centre of gravity. You're bringing the centre of gravities together and that's what you're going to work with. So they're, they're an important part of that process too is to understand where it's allowed to have technical challenges, but you've got to train for stability. You don't train to have shit technique. Right. That's, man, that's such a, a, I guess, a dime drop because so many people out there, uh, for example, this is something I dislike a lot, but people will do it. They will do a really hard jiu-jitsu session and they're like, oh, I'll just get my lifting in after, like as an afterthought. <laughs> when they're totally fatigued, they're dehydrated, <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. you know, they're smoked, but they're like, no, I've got to get my lifting in. And it's like you're practicing shit technique. You're lifting suboptimally because your nervous system's fried. You're like, what benefit other than you can tick the box and go, I lifted weights today. It's not necessarily making you stronger. Like that's one of my big issues with jiu-jitsu folks is they're just – people are mentally strong. You know, people do jiu-jitsu. They, they're mm-hmm. tough humans. They'll take – the damage, they'll do the work, but it doesn't mean they're being effective. And mm-hmm. what annoys me is people are like, yeah, but I'm, you know, I'll just, I'm getting in after. And it's like, no, that's, it's not actually having the desired effect. You're not getting stronger by doing that. And that's, mm. that's just one of my own. I see that as a mistake. Do you see any common mm. things or is there things you see where you laugh? You're like, you fucking stupid jujitsu people. You know, like <laughs> you see, is it, is it any common? Not. Is there any common mistakes? I mean, you spend most of your time hanging out with big, strong power lifters mm. and, and very well-informed strength practitioners. You know, a guy like Seb from uh, like Australian Strength Coach, very, very strong human. Do you – do you because you spend so many time around very informed people and there's plenty of our friends out there in the jiu-jitsu community who – they just love jiu-jitsu and they just – they don't know anything Good. about strength – do you see any mistakes or is there any piece of advice you can give them? Well, you picked it up there. In fact, on Sunday, I just had the joys of being uh, introduced to the Kashi and the Persian um, ah. martial arts conditioning process. <laughs> what a guy, huh? Cash, yeah. <laughs> a good news is for you. I think I've got 10 reps out in the 20 kilo meals, all right? <laughs> Big dog. <laughs> yeah, son. Good work. Oh, yeah, that was good fun. He, was, he set me up for that one. <laughs> he makes sure so he's got a, a challenge what, that is un- insurmountable for each guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fun thing is when you look at the words which they're using, and there's a, there's a martial arts conditioning process that's 2,500 years old, it's all about having really good technique for a hell of a long time. You know, five-minute rounds, 10-minute rounds, you do not fail your technique. You are conditioning with brilliant technique. 
and you're putting yourself through three planes of movement, all the planes of movement necessary, but you keep going, but you do not fail your technique. Mm. And these are people who developed this from fighting all day on battlefields. What's the requirement for your ability? Well, yeah, you might get tired, but your technique's still going to be saving your life. And I think that's a lot of what we've got to look at is people are going, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm tough, I'll keep going. Dude, if your technique's shit, stop. Go back, condition with good technique. Get better, longer longer duration technique. Hey, guess what? You won't be having to see me for any rehab if you do that. Nice. I wanted to ask, Andrew, about um, your sort of – it's going back a little bit, but your your transition into the practitioner that you are – which is you told us you had that experience coming through um, kind of, you know, working in a hospital, doing your master's, the obviously university education and whatnot. But that would sort of indicate that you'd be like a general kind of rehab sort of guy. Talking to you, looking at you, you are obviously not a typical kind of rehab guy. I can see, you know, you've got the picture of JT on your shirt there. It says Andrew Life Strength around it. Um, you know, but you've got the chain, you know, you've got the thickness and then and the love of strength training. Mm. Where did this part come where strength became such a value mm. of yours? Uh, look, seriously, I'll admit openly that I've got a body image disorder. All right, I wake up every day, I am a skinny, small guy in my head. Don't worry, that's every single day of my life. Andrew and Locke what- ate Bane for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking I've been 130 kilo for the last 20 years, but it's still in the head. Man, I, I just wake up little and I feel insignificant. It's a disorder, and I embrace the disorder. That's why I'm the professional I am. See, a disorder can be a huge advantage, and that's what it is to me. It may be pursued professionally. The things that people who came to me were experiencing as injury. So my body sort of made me lift weights and I had to learn how to lift them really well and consistently and different forms of moving resistance under load, strongman training, uh, powerlifting, bodybuilding. It didn't matter. It was all about how to move resistance. And that was just my passion because I had to do it every day. Otherwise, I would wake up smaller the next day. Right. Uh, dude, it's, it's what you understand. It's, it's this thing that's something that drives you into being who you are. That's probably a disorder of some matter. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I mean, you're a fairly disordered individuals, aren't you? <laughs> of sorts. Yeah. Now, Joey might be slightly more well-balanced in a, in a calmer, psychotic way. Mine is a yeah. little bit more that's, emotional. <laughs> that's what made you move towards the careers you have. So my my investigation of um, resistance training and human body basically comes out of my own desire to get bigger every day. And that involves lifting more weight every day or in better techniques or in better ways. And there it is. Now I've got my Persian meals and I realize I have some movement pattern deficiencies that will benefit me. Now, the interesting thing is we talk about, say, looking at the world's best powerlifters, right? And I can look at uh, someone like um, Blaine Sumner, right? Now, Blaine, he's a nice nice guy for you. Squatted 515 kilos, right? Now, imagine that. Not only did he squat 515 kilos, but he walked it out of the racks. Now, he weighs 200 kilos. You're talking about a single-leg stance with 715 kilos on it. That's an incredible athlete. Strength in sagittal plane. He squatted that. Funny thing was, if you look at it, he stumbled slightly, regained his composure, and squatted perfectly. He actually fractured his spine on that lift that he did complete. Wow. Incredible athlete. Yeah, I work a bit with Blaine. He's an amazing human being. Whoa. Um bench pressed a thousand pounds with a um the shirt on. What? Yep, doing, doing his thing. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus um, Christ. 
a different human being. But what I look at those is they're very good. And he used to be a pro football player, right? Right. Now, Blaine then took up during his rehab process recently. He did a Dancing with the Stars over in um, his state over in Wyoming. And I looked at Blaine, I go, man, he goes, he hardly ever danced. You look at this guy and you go, he moves so damn well. Um, athletes tend to be able to transfer sports beautifully and athletes so good to deal with. Incredibly strong, but yeah, you put him into um, into a dancing comp in no time you can understand how to move because he had a good athletic career behind him. But a lot of the powerlifters I see, they didn't do any other sports. They just did powerlifting so they can move in a straightforward pattern. But I'll tell you what, put them into a side plank and they can't hold it for five seconds. Right. So their control's here, but they've got no frontal plane and probably got no rotational plane. Now, to help those people get stronger, I have to actually bring in some frontal plane work that takes them away from just a central plane, but it adds into their ability to stabilize better. So there's the three planes of movement that I consider in rehab, and that's what we looked at with the um, the Persian conditioning. There's three planes of movement for the shoulder, for the body, and that's jujitsu. Three planes of movement that you've got to become competent in. You just can't stay. Is a deadlift really a great exercise for jujitsu? No, it wouldn't be my first choice. I would tend to go with something like a get-up, which I think is far more multi-planar to learn how to control because you're going to have to have some abs, you're going to have to have some ass, and your back probably isn't the biggest part of that. See, one of the things about it is if you have three workers that work for you in a factory, right, and they all come in and clock in at 8 o'clock in the morning and then two of them get in the car and head down the beach for the rest of the day, leaving one to do all the work, who's going to complain about that situation in a week, two weeks, a month? Your best worker is going to complain, not the guys down the beach. So when someone comes in and says to me, I've got a back problem, I usually say, you ain't got a back problem, you've got a back solution. Your back is the only thing that's actually working for you. You've got no ass and you can't hold a plank and you can't hold a brace. Guess what? <laughs> you have weak ass, weak abs, but you've got a hell of a strong back. Thank your back for its assistance. It's been doing a great job. Don't beat up on it. Guess what? Your back's your strength. Now address your weaknesses. Let's get your ass moving. Let's get your abs working. No, I like the get up for that. Nice. That's a great piece of information. That's there. huge. So I say that's the encapsulation of where people blame the best worker they got. Wow, that's that's such a powerful analogy. It's funny just on that because it's very easy for that person to develop a narrative of oh, I've got a shit back. Yeah, and what you're doing <laughs> is completely flipping that. To be like, no, you've actually got a fantastic back. It's the rest of you that sucks. Yeah, and I actually had yeah, this. Absolutely, I had this conversation just before. Good friend of ours, Jess Ng, has hurt her back, and uh, so two weeks ago she came to me. Uh, I just came back. And she's, oh, I hurt my back. She actually won uh, World Masters uh, mm. at Purple Belt. So she just got her brown belt. She's just mm. doing some rolling and, and strained her back. No, no disc bulge or anything like that. Mm. And I said, oh, since I've seen you, you've been lifting? What's been going on? She's like, oh, I haven't. I was like, oh, there you fucking go. <laughs> so then this morning I saw her for coffee. She's like, she, she came in full grandma hobble. And I'm like, what's going on? She's like, I hurt the other side of my back. And I was like, haven't you been doing like rehab and stuff? She's like. Oh, a little bit. And I was like, how'd you hurt your back? She's like, I was rolling. Like, <laughs> God damn it. Like, what are you doing? Like, it drives me crazy because jujitsu people, there's so much fun that people get from it, right? It's a bit of an addiction that people are like, oh, it's the fun. I don't want to do the other stuff because that's not fun. And it's just like, it, it kind of drives me crazy uh, in, in this way because people just don't appreciate that um, there is a, there's a real cost for this thing that they're doing. And, uh, mm. and and like in the same way you're talking about 
um, powerlifters who I greatly respect. And, you know, a squat, a deadlift and a bench can be such technical lifts. But if we compare that to trying to wrestle another human who's fighting you, like the the demands are so much so much crazier. Multiplayer, yeah. Yeah, it's so hard to even calculate. Like someone just, you know, jumps guard on you and then <laughs> blows out your knee or, <laughs> you know, kicks you in the face or whatever it might be. But the, the thing I want to ask, um, Andrew, because this is something interesting. I find this interesting and I wanted to I, – I haven't had this conversation with you directly, so I thought I would I would ask and maybe Joey has some questions related to this, is um, your stance on stretching because I've seen some of your posts and – it, to me, it, it strikes me that this is not your first love. Oh, well, that's interesting. I'll take you back to where you talk about Jess there, right? Is that um, the very best athletes I deal with do the most boring shit more often and better than anybody else. Wow. You want to get good. You want to see what the best do. The best have the ability to switch off and do the shit they don't see as directly being the sport, but they do the work. They switch off their brains. They'll do half an hour. They'll do two hours. doesn't matter. They do the basics. Then they go do the work. Mm-hmm. As their ability to do what is required, that's like Blaine Sumner. There is an hour a day of work he does every single day in his work. That's not lifting. Now, this is a guy who just simply says, I have to do the work. And he doesn't even negotiate. It's, yeah, this is what you got to do. You go do it. Now, that's the hallmark of the best people. The ability to do the most boring shit. Now, we are dealing with a lot of people who are really deep thinkers. Commonly, we deal with people who overthink things, and they're the ones who find it a little bit more challenging. Now, Blaine's an engineer. I think he's got a master's degree in engineering. He understands movements and loads and talks. His ability to understand what he has to do, build resilience around his body to do what he's got to do. And that is the hallmark of these people who you get like that who just aren't prioritizing the thing that's boring as hell to them. Uh, this is a that's that's a gift that the, a lot of the best people have. They have the gift to switch off when it comes to boring shit. Uh, how, how to harness that? That's something we just have to do. Discipline. So now, yeah. So now we come to the stretching concept. I've worked with circus athletes and um, you know, contortionists, gymnasts, and I've yet to have to stretch any of them because I find that the limitation to the mobility is using an underlying lack of stability. So if I can give a joint its maximum stability through strength, then they'll find that the mobility suddenly occurs. I even put that up on just on the um, Insta just before I came on, is I produced a yoga pose, which is basically a, a modified fish yoga pose for my girl, Julie. Now she had an inability to reach overhead very clearly with her left hand. Okay, I gave her scapular stability, turned that on within 15 seconds of work. Guess whose arm went straight up overhead because I stabilized the scapula. Right. So your stretch, uh, I once again, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with stretching. I just have a problem with the thought process that might lead to stretching. In other words, I'm tight. Yes. And the next question I want you to ask is, why are you tight? Now, if you ask, if you answer the why you're tight, you'll get a solution to your tightness. If you just stretch because it's tight, you haven't answered the why. Answer the why, you'll have a sensible program now set up to address why you were tight. Got tight hip flexors? Yeah, well, guess what? Your ass isn't working that well. Your hip is slightly forward in the socket. That produces a thing called arthrogenic neuromuscular inhibition, which is a reflex which inhibits your extensors and facilitates your flexors. 
How do I address that? Well, guess what? I'm going to strengthen your extensors, and by basically antagonist-agonist um, interaction, your psoas now is going to be inhibited because I've just facilitated your hip extensors. And guess what? You don't have to stretch your hip flexor no more because you just got a hip flexor that released itself. Now, there's the why behind my mobility. But that's not to say that stretching isn't to be done. I just want you to tell me why and clinically what that is behind it. It's cool. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. It does. And, yeah. I mean, we, we do work off this ourselves. Mobility is a big piece. Like I feel like a lot of people who come to us, see our Instagram or see anything that we put out, eh, people are always like, oh, man, I did that mobility drill. I felt so much better. But, you know, when we are doing mobility, there's nothing passive about it. You are mm. working with your own weight or load uh, through whatever the movement pattern might be. But uh, Joey and I have talked about this before, coupling the kind of agonist-antagonist work of mm. like doing doing a certain amount of uh, hip flexor work and then combining that with loading the glutes and firing up the glutes and that getting working that backwards and forwards can generate amazing uh, responses or corrections in people just by just uh, getting the muscles that – and I guess it – Correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrew. What you're saying is that when someone comes to you and says this muscle is tight, that that is a symptom. That's mm, not spot on. Yeah, that's not the the problem necessarily. That's just your body saying, "Hey, this thing is doing this," which is indicating a lack of function somewhere else. We just asked the question, "Why?" Now we're going to go examine it and find out why you got tight. Yeah, but I guess the mm. thing is with jujitsu people, if they're they're scooting, they're on the ground. <laughs> these people are actively you know, really pulling their knees into their chest for guard retention. Or, so you should. Yeah, you know, and that's that's part of it too. But they're not doing much time uh, in the other direction. Yeah, if they do the other work, then they'll probably find they can find their full capacity in the hip flexion and stronger because of it. See, if your hip flexors are tight, they're getting fatigued as well, aren't they? Oh, that's not really useful because mm. someone's just going to break you down. Yes. That's cool. So, you know, the the better your capacity under there is that that's a fresh hip flexor and you make that hip flexor nice and strong. Good. That's only strong because it can come off a strong base of basically the other hip musculature that you've got. And if you're at plane, you might need some frontal plane. You might need some transverse plane. You've got to put the glutes and the hips through all motions so that it's not just relying on hip flexion all the time. So that's your athlete who loves to pull guard banging into hip flexion, banging into hip flexion, man, that thing is going to get tired. How much hip extension work are you doing? How much side plank work are you doing? How much strength are you putting into your frontal planes? Yes. You know what? Forget the suitcase walk. How about we do some uh, – forget the farmer's walk. Let's do our suitcase walks. Right. Challenging ourselves into those planes of strength. I think you'll find that your capacity for endurance increases in your hip flexion in training then. Nice. That's cool. No, I think this, there's, there's so much in there that people are probably not even appreciating how much information you've filtered to distill that, that this, yeah. this, this, this knowledge. Oh, that's a weird thing. I look at it, it's like reading a little golden book now. They go, this is easy. But <laughs> it took me 25, 30 years to figure it out. Uh, it actually happened where I, I observed one of the things about doing the thing you don't understand is I tested somebody once with something I didn't believe should change, and it changed. And that was the whole point. If I do this all the time, I don't believe this will change you, but I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm just going to test something anyway, and I'll observe it. 
and then I see things change. Now I've got to explain why it changed. So Professor McGill, who's the um, author of over 350 papers on spinal biomechanics, um, he's a good friend, so I appreciate the, the help he gives me some days. I tried to explain what happened and how it changed, and I sent him my explanation to it. And he sent me three research papers and said, here's an alternative. Didn't say I was wrong. He just said, consider this. Man, it took me two years to understand those two research, three research papers. Now I look at them and go, oh, shit, that was so easy. Uh, it takes me five minutes to understand it now. But to get to the concepts, to make it easy, sometimes you've got to go through a bit of work. And so it seems so easy now. And that's the thing about when I teach is I can show you how to learn it because I had to I had to break it down. I had to get rid of all the shit that I didn't understand to get through to the, hey, this is easy to understand if you know how to do this. Three planes of movement. Okay, if you have a dysfunction in one plane of movement, you may have to use another plane of movement to get to it. It's like glute max. Glute max extends your hip. Yeah, but it also helps abduction and external rotation. And if you have a dysfunctional hip extension, you may just compensate at your lumbar spine because your hip extension shit. So if you go straight at hip extension, you're probably not going to get what you desire. How about if I give you some abduction external rotation that does include glute max, and then I take you into hip extension? Oh, shit, guess what? I'm not getting the compensation now because of post-activation performance enhancement, which is you get the muscle to start performing in a, a more isolated movement because you don't really isolate things. You put them into focus, and then you bring it into the complex pattern, and it'll start to work. Incorporate, yeah. Wow. That's that's profound, mate. That's so helpful. I mean, at least I think for me, it confirms a lot of what I think, even though this may be very new and kind of revolutionary information to some people who are mm. listening. Could I ask, Andrew, um, do you have, and I know that this is probably like, uh, yeah, maybe a bit of a junkie or kind of throwaway sort of uh, thing mm. to ask, but do you have... Uh, like some key recommendations or observations on common behaviours you see with folks, be it jiu-jitsu athletes or otherwise, things that maybe you wish they could be doing, exercises that they should be adding in or key sort of areas of focus? Yeah, a key one which really works well is because most people like yourselves right now and myself, we're sitting here in basically 90 degrees hip flexion, right? That might be a requirement of some people's work for eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. Grab one of those booty bands and stick it around your knees and do 25 abductions pushing against the band every hour that you're sitting. All right, you're going to crank in a couple of hundred reps a day of gluteal work. Now, that's going to make a difference. I love it when people come to me with 10 years of lower back issues, so-called, and one of their hallmarks is getting out of a chair. The longer they sit down, the more shit it is getting out of the chair. All right, you give them that as an intervention, and suddenly, okay, getting out of the chair is easy. What the hell? Yeah, it wasn't your back that was a problem. It's the fact you've got no ass, and your ass is turned off and it's been turned off for years. Now, have you ever heard this dumb shit where you get this flavor Instagram, of course, social media, there's no filter? There's this thing people saying, oh, if you just put a person in the right position to lift, the muscles will automatically move in the pattern that they should. Ever heard that one? I have, yeah. Yep. Oh, it's fucking stupid. <laughs> All right. I had, I had this lady who contacted me. And during the COVID experience, she had travelled for about 30 hours, right, 30 hours to get from, I think it was South America to Australia. Now, 30 hours of sitting on planes, sitting on buses, sitting in taxis to have to go through various connections to get back to Australia. Okay, 30 hours of sitting. Now, she decides quite wisely, time to go to the gym. Now, what will I do? I'm going to do some deadlifts. Good idea. Okay, reasonable, easy weight, chucked on the bar for the warm-up, right? 
stands over the bar in good technique, stands up and snaps both her hamstrings, ischial tuberosities off the bone. Bang. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, guess what? Her ass didn't work. It didn't work. It was in the right position. That's because that gluteal had become inhibited probably by arthrogenic neuromuscular inhibition. You're going to stand up and that load suddenly says, well, what's going to lift it? Well, shit, the hamstrings better do something. So they did something, and the bone was just avulsed. Very good example of no, it does does matter how you prime and prepare a body for movement. Mm. Mm, These are the classics. That was a good one. Now, the classics, there's a research. You've got to know how to read research anyway. Don't just read a conclusion. Um, You've got to, you know, that's a tough thing. Research papers, you actually have to know your subject very in depth. You actually have to know how to read the methods. You have to know how to how they put people into the research studies. And I read those and I can tell immediately why the conclusion is wrong. Now, there was a research paper on sitting and standing desks, right? And it said there was basically no difference between people who stood at a standing desk or sat through the day when testing gluteal EMGs afterwards. Yeah, do you want to that's a conclusion. Or read the interventions. What do they do? A five-minute walking warm-up. Well, five minutes of walking is five minutes of hip extension. You've just basically given the person the hip extension who was sitting all day. Yeah. So, of course, it's going to start up a little bit. Yeah. Right. Now, those sort of things get quoted all the time. Oh, this research paper said that. Yeah, well, unless you know how to read the research paper, don't quote it to me. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> Good call. And So, there, that's the problem. With, 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 with all this, because many people – I, and like you were saying before, we're all sitting here, we're chatting. Many people listening to this, they're sitting in their car perhaps. Um, you, you're saying the booty band, it's a really mm. good takeaway. Is there any other thing that you, I, you know, as easy or hard as it might be, would uh, prescribe or suggest one single thing or maybe two things that five people Five single could, things. Please. Five single oh, actually, things. Actually, I've got to throw you a whole lot more. All right, there's five basic movements that uh, I developed. They're called the base five. They're on my Instagram page. They're stuck at the pin at the top, right? Now, the whole idea of those five movements is essentially based upon McGill's Big Three. Right, the McGill Big Three. McGill's methods are not the Big Three. That's just three exercises that you may start with. You may not start with them. There's a, everything in McGill is about movement. It's, there's a whole lot built. When I hear people say, oh, it failed. I, you know, I did the Big Three. Yeah, and what was next? Because it doesn't stop there. All right, so on my page, the first thing I do is I teach a version of the clams, which I produced about 20 years ago, which anatomically puts the glutes into a position where they actually work. Um, We do this particular abduction external rotation because I want to get to glute max into extension, but I don't do that first up because of the compensatory pattern. So we do 25 clams each side, two, two sets. Then we do a front plank done correctly. No bullshit AFL footy planks with your hands together. Set up a plank correctly. You'll see the instructions how to do it. Got to be able to hold that for 30 seconds twice. Then a side plank. So now we're looking at frontal plane. Then we're going to look at shoulder taps. We're going to look at some anti-rotational work. And then we're finally going to go to hip extension in a prone position probably. There's five basic movements. All right, now, there's your five basic movements that will address you in a physical sense that you should be doing twice a day. Now, here's a good one. You guys are going to have fun doing this one, right? I want you to test this on yourselves later. You can do it now if you like. <laughs> Basically, proprioception is one of the most important parts of rehab. Body's position, sense of position in space. Um, I get people to stand on one leg, one foot, no no Nikes, all right, and um, just bare feet. And you got to stand on one foot with your eyes shut for thirty seconds. And then you got to do the other foot, thirty seconds, eyes shut. You got to do two of those twice a day. Now, 
you will notice if I get you to test this out, put your hands on your hips and bend backwards after this um, recording today and do one rep, feel what it feels like. Then do your 30 seconds of eyes shut, proprioception, two times, then retest your lumbar spine extension afterwards. You'll find it changes dramatically. You've basically got the feedback system underneath there, which is an imperative. And what is not being done is, and that was where a lot of failure of rehab has been, um, people missed the proprioception. They took it a couple of muscles called the um, interspinale and the intertransversari. And because they don't have a big cross-sectional area, everyone ignored them, but they're full of muscle spindles. Now, you need to re-educate your muscle spindles to help you control movement. That's part of the stability mechanism that will help you handle flexion under load. So the proprioceptive system is super important. So if you can do your five basic exercises and you add in your single leg balance, you're actually starting to set up a body that's going to be more resilient. The other one I will tend to throw at you is I want you to do 100 calf raises, single leg, per calf, per day, spread out over your 24 hours. And you must do your calf raises coming through the big toe, not rolling off onto the fifth toe. Mm-hmm. That's how human beings walk and run. Now, if we address those things, you're actually really doing some good work. If you do those, that's simple. You can do that every day. You can get your hundred calf raises in per day. You can do two. You can do your two minutes of balance twice a day and your five basic exercises. If you do that, you're actually going to be pretty prepared for whatever starting warm ups activations you should be doing prior to training. Awesome. That's great. I will definitely we'll we'll find that. We'll do them. We'll yeah, we'll, them. we'll do them. Yeah. We'll put them on our yeah. Instagram so B will do it. The bulletproof <laughs> big five is that what we're calling it? I think so. Base five. Base five. Base five. Bulletproof base five. I mean, it's got a ring. There to it is. It. Go for it. <laughs> uh, who knows? Squat, all your, all Squat University might pick it up and uh, <laughs> repost it. But uh, I think um, that's amazing. I think it, the fact that you can distill it to that is an incredible thing. Like there's so much insight behind the mountain of work that you've done in your career to be able to give people such easy, actionable things to do. Um, and do, do the basics, man. Do the basics. Everything else will follow. Yeah. We'll definitely link uh, in the show notes to that. And, uh, man, I feel like there's there's so many more things that we could probably get into. <laughs> Um, we will do. We will. We will definitely do a part two. And I think that w- yeah. what would be good is to maybe get harder into the world of strength and and talk about lifting and those other elements for, for people out there who are interested to get bigger and get stronger. And I, I feel like there could be a lot of value in that chat. Well, we should. Easily enough, I'll be able to come up. You're up in Sydney these days, aren't you? Indeed. And uh, yeah. when's, your, uh, when's your next seminar? I'll, I'll have to come along. There's one in November up in Sydney and there's one in Melbourne. Okay. But um, after I come back from Perth, I think I'm going to come up and do a week of video work with Sebastian as well. Amazing. I'll drop in with you, drop in with you guys. We'll do a bit of um discussing the programming and working that you guys do. That'd be fucking awesome. That'd be an we'll honor. Throw a day on. Yeah, yeah, has to be done. We'd love it. We'd love it. Thank you so much, Doctor Locke. You are a legend and a titan, and it's been <laughs> um so good to have you on. I like my picture on the screen. I don't look so small today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Magic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Dr. Locke. Thanks, mate.